Good morning, Christ Fellowship. One thing um, Pastor Carlos forgot to mention is if you sign up to be a volunteer, we'll take down your shirt size and you'll get a shirt so that on Project uh, Serve Day, you'll have, everybody will be dressed with the same shirt with our theme for the year. So you don't want to miss that. Praise God. Today we're going to continue a series, and it's right on your bulletin, We Believe, the Foundations of Our Faith. And what we're doing is we're diving deep into an, a document called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is, has been written, I guess, since the second century. And what it is, it's the Apostles' teaching in condensed form, like an irredis- irresistible minimum. Like if we were to say what we believe, that would cover every area. That word um, in Latin, creed, actually means I believe. And what we're saying when we say a creed is that I believe everything that's written in it, not just in, in here, in our minds. What we're saying is we believe enough to make what we're saying the way that it will guide our lives. So on the back of your bulletin, you have the creed. It's actually written. If you would take out your bulletin and turn to the back, because we're going to read the creed together as much as we can. Let's try to stay together on this. Last week, we, we covered the first portion, because in this creed, there's really 12 key foundational points. And we covered the first part. Okay, and let's start reading together. Ready? On three. One, two, three. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, um, when we get into each week, that word Catholic might throw some people. That is small Catholic. That means universal church. Just to kind of go ahead a little bit, that's not my part. That's not even in my notes. But I know that confused me initially when I first read this. But to kick off the series today, we're going to concentrate on Jesus. Now, Jesus, we know his name means Jehovah is salvation. Jesus came in his name, his mission. He came to save his people from their sins, our sins. But the second word, the second word in that creed, the compound word, Jesus Christ, is what I want to zero in on today. Christ is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. It indicates that Jesus Christ is the fulfiller of the messianic promises that were written 
from Genesis to Malachi, what the Jews were waiting for, the promised one, the Messiah. Now, I don't know if many of you read, how many of you know the name Lee Strobel? Can I see a raise of hands? Okay, some of you might recognize his name. He's a great author. He authored dozens of books. They actually made a movie about his life, his true life, uh, The Case for Christ. Uh, But he was an investigative reporter, and his wife became a believer. He was an atheist, and he was on a mission to prove that Jesus Christ was a phony. And through his investigation, he found proof, undeniable proof, because he looked at the prophecies about him being a messiah, that undeniably Jesus was who he said he was, God. And then there's another author, one of my favorite authors, uh, Josh McDowell. He wrote a book, and when I first became a believer, I wanted to, to learn, well, I still do, but I wanted to learn everything, the whys, the proofs. And so this is a book called New Evidence Demands a Verdict. And he found that by examining 300 of the prophecies concerning the Messiah, that Jesus fulfilled every one of them. And the probabilities of that happening, he said, even if you just took eight of those, and I want to read something in the book because it's mind-boggling, just eight of those being fulfilled in one man, is that possible? Could that happen? Here it says this. We find the chance, and behind me you'll see the probability. It's one in 10 to the 17th power. Kind of looks like this. The probability. And here's what he says. We find the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled eight of the prophecies. That would be one to the 17th power, as you see behind me, in order to help us comprehend this, the staggering probability. He illustrates if we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of the state of Texas, they will uh, cover that state two feet tall. And if you now mark one of the silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state, blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar with that mark on it and say this is the right one, what chance would he have of getting the right one? That's the probability of just fulfilling eight of the the 300 messianic promises that Jesus fulfilled when he walked on the earth. You know, Paul, when he, if you look in the book of Acts, when he spoke to both the Jews and the Greek, he reasoned with them and he showed them, look, these are the prophecies concerning Christ the Messiah. And look what Jesus did. And through that, he stayed three weeks with them. Thousands became believers because they were convinced that this was undeniable proof that Jesus was the Christ. So in the Apostles' Creed, up until this time, it's a mystery. You know, we, if you think that you in your finite mind can comprehend how God could become 
I mean, Jesus could walk in the flesh and he could become man. It's hard for us to grasp, but you know, it's very plainly stated in the word of God. It's the truth. Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He's God. He is the promised one. He's God in the flesh. I want us to turn to uh, John chapter 1. And we see here, I want to read in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That's pretty clear. John is showing us clear his etern Jesus's eternal existence, his co-equality with God, and his creatorship, right? Now, let's, jot, let's go down to verse 14 and read that. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And uh, jump down to 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Now, obviously, the meaning of the word that we see in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word became flesh. We're talking about Jesus Christ, who is God, who was God, and shall always be God. He is uh, co-equal with the Father. So when, he, when Jesus walked the earth, many people give the argument that he never said he was God. Did you ever hear that? But what did Jesus claim himself to be? Let's look at what the word says. We're going to get into the word today and just say, and, and believe what the word says. He said this in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Now, at first glance, you might say, well, that's not saying he's God. But look how the Jews reacted to this statement. Look what they said. Verse 33 of the same chapter. We're not stoning you for any of these things, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you... A mere man claimed to be God. Now, Jesus didn't correct them. He didn't say, no, 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 I, I never claimed to be God. He said what he said because he is God. Now, let's look at another verse in John, chapter 8, verse 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. And again, the Jews were enraged. They pick up stones and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him to death. Why? Because he was referring to an Old Testament name. When you remember the, the burning bush and Moses appeared before the burning bush and, and he said, and, G, and God um, acknowledged who he was to him by saying, I am that I am. So the Jews were so angry with this statement because he was claiming to be God because he is God. Now, behind me, you'll see some scriptures. And again, Jesus talks about his pre-existence before he became incarnate, before he was born in the flesh. And in, in John 17, 5, he says, Father, glorify me 
with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Chapter 6, 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And in John 4, 14 and 7, 37, the verses should be behind me, he claimed to be the source of the water of life. John 8, 12, he said he was the light of the world. And here's the most compelling proof of who he said he was. If we look with his conversation with the woman at the well in chapter uh, four of John, he replied to the woman. The woman said, I know the Messiah called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Is there any doubt that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah? No doubt. But here's one thing that some people might be confused with. Jesus existed before he became man in the flesh, God-man. There was a pre-existence. And he, but he's not a subordinate being. You know, he's not a lesser God. He is God. Again, wrap your finite minds around this. It's very hard to comprehend rationally, but we have to believe the word of God. That's what our, our, our whole message uh, series is about, believing what the word is, believing what the word says it says and what Jesus said he was, God. Now, next in the Apostles' Creed, after his name, we read this statement. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, if this doesn't trip up a lot of people, because, again, we're used to evolutionary philosophy, we're used to rational scientific reasoning, and we think about the virgin birth, that's impossible. It's an impossibility. But the virgin birth was merely a transfer from Jesus, who was in a previous condition, to his condition as man. Nothing, there wasn't a new uh, creation at that point. He was and always existed as the son. This is, this is deep. So Matthew states, if we look in the word again, in Matthew 1.18, that Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And Galatians also teach, teaches about the virgin birth. It says, God sent his son, born of a woman. You know, it, it's really crucially important that we understand why it was written in the creed. Why did they include this in the creed? Why was it so important that we understand the virgin birth and the conception by the Holy Spirit? I mean, Mary was even confused. She asked the angel, how could this be? How could this happen? And the angel answered in the most beautiful way, delicate way. 
He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And later on, uh, the angel encourages uh, Joseph and, and he says, what is conceived of Mary? Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. What is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, again, he takes the place of a husband in an unexplained way. He overshadows her. It's not like we read in some Greek mythology where there's a cohabitation between God, a God, and a woman. This was a supernatural event where the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. Now, if we if we look at that and we deny that that even happened or we deny that there was a connection between Mary and Jesus, uh, then we're denying that, that God was involved at all. We have to understand that Jesus is fully God because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but he's also fully man because there was an involvement in the womb of Mary. The immaterial God came, impregnated the material womb of Mary. That's why it's in the Apostles' Creed. We have to be clear on this. We have to understand there's no uh, you're rationalizing that this didn't happen. It couldn't have happened any other way. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. It says, since the children have flesh and blood... He too, talking about Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held by slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, that's us. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and high priest, faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So why is it so important that we understand the virgin birth or the identity of Jesus as God? Maybe you might say it doesn't matter. But if he wasn't God, his death would not have been sufficient. We sang about him today. He wouldn't have been the way maker. He wouldn't have been the healer. He wouldn't have been the reconciler. He wouldn't have been the forgiver of our sins. He wouldn't have been the light of the world or the one that transformed your life and mine. He would have been just a man. Look what John writes. In 1 John chapter 2, my dear children, I write this to you that she, so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Only God could pay that price. Let's look at Romans 8. God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, in 2 Corinthians 5, we see God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
That's why he had to be God-man. Jesus had to be God so that he could pay our debt. Jesus had to be man so that he could die and take the penalty for our sins. Now, I love to read, and I recently picked up this book. It's not a brand new book, but it's called The Trouble with Jesus. And in it, I wanted to read a quote. He writes this. Let's face it. While Jesus is inclusive in the, world, in the wideness of his mercy, Jesus is exclusive in his claim that he's the only solution for our sin problem and the only way to God, and that, indeed, he is God. Jesus is the central issue that separates me and you from Hindus, Muslims, Jews, New Age adherents, and advocates of any form of religion, and I would even add JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses. But going back to his quote, he, his claims are unique. Without shame, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the apostles didn't miss this point. They included it in this document so that we would be clear. In the early first century church, they said there is no other name by which man can be saved except Jesus Christ. It has never changed. It's the same message. There's no generic Jesus. There is no, uh, you know, we know about generic products. What am I holding? Anybody know what this is? What do you think? Vicks. Okay, but it's not Vicks. It looks like it's Vicks. It says it's medicated chest rub. But see, there's no generic Jesus. If we take a look at what that definition of a generic product, it's a good that's sold using the name for the type of good that it is rather than the brand name. The generic product is typically not heavily marketed and competes with other brand name products largely on price. Now, I, I really wanted to share that because don't people really try to make Jesus into their own image and fit him into what they want him to, to be? I mean, and then there's the copycat products. I mean, these are at least, if you really read the ingredients, it's similar. There might be fillers, there might be additives, but it's very similar, but it isn't the same product. If I had Vicks and I had this, which one would you pick? Which one would you want? The Vicks, right? Okay, but then there's these copycat products. And maybe some of you were fooled by some of these. They, they take the distinctive uh, branding or the packaging of a product, and they trick shoppers into buying something they believe is the same thing. Now, I have a few of these behind me. How about the first one? Everybody knows Coke right? Doesn't that one look like it? Wouldn't you possibly pick the other one? Classic Coke? Looks the same. The next one. I can't believe it's not butter. This one, you butter believe it. The next one. There's arm and hammer baking soda, but then there's arm and hatchet baking soda. I mean, if they were next to each other, you wouldn't even know, right? You'd be fooled. How about Frosted Flakes 
versus Frosty Flakes. How about Rice Krispies versus Crisp Rice? Head and Shoulders versus a, a package that looks sim similar but is just a dandruff shampoo, diluted way down. Um, Hellman's Mayonnaise, look at the packaging. Very, very similar. And then this one, uh, Alex really liked this one because he's an Old Spice man. Take a look at this. Old Spice with Maximum Force body wash. They look the same, but they're copycats. And they don't even do any homework. I mean, a lot of these generic products, they, they, they don't have a lot of expense because they take the homework that was done and the research that was done, the expense of that, and they just steal it. And they use it to make their own generic. These copycats, all they worry about is copying the, uh, the packaging. You don't even know what's in it. But see, this is something I want you to consider. When you're doing a generic, um, like a lot of times, you know, prescription drugs, uh, you can get a generic and it's cheaper, and, and a lot of times it's very much the same. But see, pharmaceutical companies guarantee the original. They don't, the generic doesn't have that same guarantee for its uh, effectiveness. And the same goes for other generic products. They don't give you that guarantee that it's going to work because it isn't the exact same formula. And there might be other ingredients. Like I said, there might be fillers, something else added to it, something removed. And I thought about that with a comparison about Jesus. You know, there is no generic Jesus. A lot of people think that they get a better deal when they go to the uh, buffet table, the smorgasbord, and they pick and choose what their ingredients are to make that Jesus fit into what their liking is, not a strict Jesus, maybe one that isn't born of the virgin, you know, maybe one who didn't say he was God, maybe one who uh, the coexistence wasn't there. You getting my point? There is no generic Jesus. Jesus, there's no copycat Jesus either. Although there are a lot of copycat religions out there trying to fool you and trying to tick you, uh, trick you. But, you know, the best way to understand whether you have the authentic Jesus is to have the manual. There's a manual that you can read so that you make sure that you have the right ingredients. And it's the B-I-B-L-E, the basic instructions before leaving earth. Read the manual and you'll know who the authentic Jesus is, and you won't be fooled by the generics or the copycats. I mean, the next phrase in the Apostles' Creed says, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and was buried. There was no other way. Do you think when he agonized in the garden, and prayed to the Father, the creator of everything, that God couldn't fashion another way if there was a way. He couldn't have re recreated another way. He couldn't because there is no other way. Jesus had to die for your sins and mine. He had to come in the, uh, the body of, through a body of a, a vessel of a woman as man to identify with us and as God conceived of the Holy Spirit, there was no other way. There was no other plan. There was no plan B. 
God in the person of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and defeating death through his resurrection was and is the only solution. There's no other way. I mean, if you try to merge Jesus into another uh, definition of who he was, you try to downsize him after reading this verse. Try to downsize who, who he is. Let's read. This is from the New Living Translation. I want to read this. This is from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Pretty unparalleled credentials, wouldn't you say? Jesus is described as the, in, the image of God. He is the visible of the invisible. He became the knowable of the unknowable. He was the revealer of the Father. He's the only person of the Trinity that can be seen or ever will be seen because God is spirit. He's the creator of all things, visible and invisible. We just read it. All things were created by him. He's the agent of creation. He was there in the beginning. And he is the firstborn because he resurrected from the grave. He is the firstborn of the church. Revelations 1 says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I became dead. This is a great one to read to Jehovah's Witnesses. Who are they talking about? Who, who is this talking? He was dead and now he's alive. And behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades or hell. Now in the creed we read, it said he descended into hell. He descended into hell. Oh, the third day he rose from the dead. Now, that word is in the original language is Hades. We're talking about the place where, if you remember the story of Lazarus and the, and the, the, the rich man, Lazarus and the poor man, and there was a separation, and Lazarus pleaded to be able to come to the other side of Hades, but there, there was, it was a holding place. That's where Jesus ascended. He went to Abraham's side, the blessed side of Hades, because his suffering ended the moment he died on the cross. And that was tremendous suffering for you and I. And he descended into hell. He didn't go to hell. He went to Hades. There's a difference. Make no mistake, every hope, every confidence, Everything that we sang about during worship 
was because Jesus is who he said he was, God. Without him, the storyline of the Bible disappears because the whole story from Genesis right up to Revelation is about the rectifying the fatal consequences of the fall of man. Man sinned, and God had a way to redeem us. The whole storyline of the Bible is about Jesus Christ and his ultimate victory over sin and death in the grave and that we will get into as we continue this creed. Without him, your guilt remains. My guilt remains. We have no hope of forgiveness because we know now that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us only if we believe. Without Jesus, I can't get to God. He, Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except through me. Without Jesus, heaven is gone and hell remains our reward. Without him, I have no joy. Jesus said, I told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And without him, I'm lost for all eternity. You probably know John 3.16. He so loved you, the world, that he gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Without him, you do not have eternal life with the Father, but will be separated in the lake of fire. Many of you remember 9-11, the tragedy of that day, and you remember the resurgence of patriotism, and everybody was driving around with American flags on their cars, and God was back, but Jesus wasn't. Remember, God came back. But who's God? Which God? Was it the God of Islam, the God of Hinduism, the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the God of the New Age? Or was it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the seed, Jesus Christ? Which God? We see what happened after 9-11 was the emergence, re-emergence of paganism. You could worship any God you want as long as your God doesn't have preeminence over my God. It was like we could talk about any other God, but we can't talk about Jesus because of his claim, his claim to be the only way. Of course, this is nothing new because in the first three centuries, the Christian church was under tremendous uh, persecution and there was Roman paganism, and they, even the smell of burning flesh and the growl of lions in the arenas did not stop his people from proclaiming the truth that Jesus Christ is God, and he died for their sins. Do we have the same uh, zeal to proclaim this truth that hasn't changed? I mean, they, they refused to say Caesar was Lord. And they were painted as the bad guys. Does that sound familiar? You know, we don't want to fit our Jesus, the generic Jesus, their Jesus. We have the real, authentic Jesus. And we're the bad guys. We're the ones now being persecuted more and more on the job because of our businesses refusing, uh, you know, to break the standard 
of what we know is biblical truth. The world painted them as bad guys, and get used to it, that's who we are. We're Jesus' followers. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet. They believe in the highest order, but they don't believe he's God, as Jesus claimed to be. They deny he was born of a virgin. They deny he rose from the dead. They reject the fact that he is the final atonement for sin. They have a generic God. They don't have the true Jesus. And I would say many, and I pick on Jehovah's Witnesses because they are deceiving masses of people because they don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe Jesus is God either. And they don't even believe the Holy Spirit is God. They believe it's just a force on the earth. No, read the manual so you know who the authentic Jesus Christ is. Now, there's a quote here from the same book. It says this, The one-sized Jesus must be tolerant of everyone, judgmental toward none, kind but not analytical, loving but not disciplining, a moldable figment of every imagination, an idol of our own making, a bland, almost boring, inoffensive, non-divisive Jesus. Is that the authentic Jesus? Is that the Jesus we're talking about in the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed was composed to address the very same paganism that we're faced with today. And what the Apostles' Creed talks about is foundational. We have to know, know who Jesus really is without the slightest twist, the no-spin zone on who Jesus is. We believe he's God, that he is God who he claimed to be. He's the only way, that his death on Calvary was the finished work, that regardless of class or culture or uh, color, everyone is welcomed as a child. You know, he's inclusive for everyone, but he's exclusive in the way we get to God. In the, in the creed, the early Christians were faithful to this simple message, and we need to be too. We need to be clear. We need to be able to uh, articulate what we believe and why we believe and get familiar with the authentic Jesus. He dwelt among us, Jesus, to solve the insolvable dilemma of sin. He proved time and time that he was indeed God by his miracles and his fulfillment of messianic promises. He rose from the grave in victory over evil and over hell. And at this very moment, he is preparing a place for you. But we'll get into that next week. Now, let me add that we live in a society right now that's steeped in paganism. So that what we have to say, we have to say it in appropriate ways. Not to uh, beat people over the head. And a lot of times, it's not so much what we say, it's how we live. Are we being light of the world? Are we being the salt? 
And, you know, we need to be bold, and when the opportunity comes, say something. But as uh, St. Francis of Assisi says, there's a quote behind me here, preach the gospel every day, and when necessary, use words. We need to let our lights shine before men that they would see God and glorify God. So I thought I would make this an opportunity for us to get personal with God. I know the back of the the bulletin, it starts off with, we believe. Yes, I I believe. Okay, I believe. So we're going to say together, I want you to stand. If you believe Jesus is who he said he was, the son of God, okay, we're going to say this together. And I want you to say it with enthusiasm and excitement, understanding so much is contained in these words. I don't want you to say it fast. I want you to mean it from your heart. Okay, one, two, three. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I believe he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I believe he was born of the Virgin Mary. I believe he suffered under Pontius Pilate. I believe he was crucified, died, and was buried. I believe he descended into hell. I believe on the third day he rose again from the dead. Hallelujah. If you believe that, if you truly believe that, tell somebody else. Preach the gospel every day with your life. I want to pray with you and send you out. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the the mission. Jesus came for the purpose to reveal you, the Father, to us and to redeem your people, to set us free from sin and death. Thank you that you came as the firstborn among the dead, that you were the example. And Lord, right now, we're the extension of your work. We're your hands, we're your feet, we're your mouth. Lord, send us out that we would proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ every day, wherever we go. And then if we can't say it, Lord God, let us live it. Let us be living epistles of your truth. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege of being called your child. We thank you for the sacrifice because, Lord, I could have spent the whole morning talking about how much you suffered and died, that what you you did on the cross for us, God. Lord, we thank you for redemption. We thank you for forgiveness. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.